Open your Bibles to John chapter 7. Let's get right with it. John chapter 7, I'm in the series entitled H2O. We're looking at the Gospel of John and going through more or less chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Because wherever you drill down in the Gospel of John, you're going to find water. Chapter 7 is something of a climax. I kind of want you to, to get a sense of where you are. Go all the way back to the beginning with me. John chapter 1, where's the water? Exactly. It starts with John the baptizer. John the Baptist on the, on, on the rivers uh, baptizing folks. He says, I baptize with water, but one comes after me who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Yeah, exactly. That's John chapter 1. John chapter 2, Jesus turns Water into wine at the wedding of Cana. His first sign was it was, was a sign that pertained to water. John chapter 3, Jesus encounters a man named Nicodemus. And he says to Nicodemus, unless a man be born of water and of spirit, you'll never see the kingdom of God. You must be born of water and of spirit. John chapter 4, Jesus meets another person. He meets the woman at the well, the woman of Samaria. Exactly. And he says to her, I, I can give you water. And if you drink of the water I give of you, you will never thirst again. She, sees, she says, give me that water. It's a great story. John chapter 5, Jesus heals a man at the pool of Bethesda. John chapter 6, Jesus walks on water. And he says, whoever believes in me, they will never, ever be thirsty. That brings us to John chapter 7. It's something of a climax in, in the gospel of John. It's a climax when it comes to what uh, the Bible is trying to say about Jesus and how Jesus is water for our souls. The problem with John chapter 7, however, is that it sort of assumes that you know quite a lot about a very particular festival, a Jewish holiday called the Feast of Tabernacles, sometimes called the Feast of Tents or the Feast of Booths or the, or the Feast of Huts. Uh, the Feast of Tabernacles for the Jews was their biggest holiday. I, I know that we sort of emphasize Passover as Christians, but for the Jews themselves, it was really about tabernacles. They called this the feast. Tabernacles was the feast. This was the, the big one. This is something like a cross between Thanksgiving and Mardi Gras. And, and, and I'm serious. It was something of a cross between Thanksgiving and Mardi Gras. The, the, the festival, the festival of tabernacles was a very joyous time, a, a time of celebration, a time when everybody who could possibly get there tried to get to Jerusalem to celebrate because that's where the celebration was. And that's where the story picks up. The story of John chapter 7 picks up with Jesus having a conversation with his brothers his real brothers, and I think that's kind of shocking to some of us. You're not used to thinking about Jesus with brothers. How many of you have brothers? Yeah, yeah, you'll probably get something. I don't have a, I don't have a brother really, but, but I love the way they, uh, they get along with Jesus here. It's interesting, and it says something important to us. They're trying to get Jesus to go to the festival. He, of course, ends up going, and he ends up blowing the lid off the whole thing. This is Pretty amazing. John chapter 7, verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to read through verse 15, jump over to verse 37 and finish up. After this, Jesus traveled around Galilee. He wanted to stay out of Judea where the Jewish leaders were plotting his death. But soon it was time for the Jewish festival of shelters, the Jewish festival of tabernacles. And Jesus' brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea where your followers can see your miracles. You can't become famous if you hide like this. If you can do such wonderful things, show yourself to the world. Verse 5, for even his brothers didn't believe in him. Interesting. Jesus replied, now is not the right time for me to go, but you can go anytime. The world can't hate you, but it does hate me because I accuse it of doing evil. 
you go on, I'm not going to this festival because my time has not yet come. After saying these things, Jesus remained in Galilee, but after his brothers left for the festival, Jesus also went, though secretly staying out of public view. Why is he staying out of public view? Because they want to kill him. They already want to kill him. Verse 11, the Jewish leaders tried to find him at the festival and kept asking if anyone had seen him. There was a lot of grumbling about him among the crowd. Some argued, he's a good man, but others said he's nothing but a fraud who deceives the people. But no one had the courage to speak favorably about Jesus in public, for they were afraid of getting in trouble with the Jewish leaders. Then midway through the festival, Jesus went up to the temple and began to teach. The people were surprised when they heard him. How does he know so much when he hasn't been trained, they asked. And then verse 37. On the last day, the climax of the festival, Jesus stood and shouted to the crowds, Anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scriptures declare, rivers of living water will flow from his heart. When Jesus said living water, he was speaking of the spirit who would be given to everyone believing in him. But the spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet entered into his glory. That's as far as we'll get. Let's stop there. How many of you love to camp? Camping? How many of you have a perfectly good bed at home and you're just, you're just yeah, about half and half? I kind of go either way. Once I'm out there camping, I, I, I like camping. But, but it's, that, it's that idea that some of us really love. It, it's just that fun of being outside, sleeping outside, sleeping inside a tent. That actually is really a, a lot of fun. Maybe gathering by a fire and cooking your meals. Uh, a, a tent outside is just a lot of fun. It's, it's a joyful thing. How many of you, when you were kids, maybe this is just me, when you were kids on a snow day or or a rainy day, did you ever take blankets and build a tent inside the house? How many of you have done that? Yeah, isn't that awesome? That's, about, that's the best part about being a kid. We should do that today. It is so much fun. I would get a blanket, quilts maybe. I would put one end up on the couch or the dining room table and pull another end. I would anchor that thing with, with World Book Encyclopedia to hold the corner. Did y'all do that too? Hold the corners down? Yeah, nobody has to teach it. This is just something, something kids do. And I could spend the whole day inside that tent underneath those blankets. It's just so much fun. I'm bringing this up because this is the kind of fun, this is the kind of joy that the Jewish people tried to capture during the Feast of Tents, the festival of, of tabernacles. Tabernacle just means tent. And this is how they celebrated. And this was the most enormously popular festival, the most immensely popular holiday that the Jews celebrated back in Jesus' day. And that's how they celebrated. That's what they did. Everybody would go out into their backyard, or if you could get to Jerusalem, you would go to Jerusalem and you would sleep in tents. You would just sleep out in a tent. Or some of the people would, would, would make huts or, or forts out of branches or, 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 or out of palm branches. It, it was just an amazing and a fun time. Sleeping out in tents was, was the main way to celebrate. And this went on for seven days. Seven days sleeping out underneath the stars, sleeping in a fort made out of out of branches. It, it was a celebration. It, it was a festival. And remember, all of the Jewish festivals were intended to help the people remember what God had done for them. 
So the Feast of Tabernacles was intended to help the people remember what God had done. And especially in the time after the Exodus when they wandered in the wilderness and they literally had no homes. So see, when the people went out and slept in the tents and they looked up at the stars, they were remembering how God provided for the people, how God took care of their parents and grandparents and great-grandparents when they themselves were wandering in the wilderness looking for a promised land. You see, it was supposed to help them remember that. And that's how they celebrated. They celebrated in tents. It was also a celebration of the harvest. These things kind of came together. The Feast of Tabernacles takes place right now at this time of year. In Woodburn, we used to have a Jewish neighbor who lived right on 31W. And I don't know if you ever saw it, but this time of year, every year, that Jewish family would build a fort in their front yard. I didn't know for the longest time what that was or what they were doing until I met them and realized that they were Jewish. They were celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. It's this time of year. It it sort of gets put together with Thanksgiving. And so the Feast of Tabernacles is also the time to celebrate the harvest and the way God continues to provide. It's just impossible for us to hear about somebody else's holiday, though, and understand the the, the joy and the celebration that got associated with it. But seriously, this was like Mardi Gras. This was a tremendous, tremendous party and celebration. Everybody loved the feast. Everybody loves the feast. Which is why it's no surprise that Jesus' brothers are packing up the kids and the wives and, and, and they're filling up the Winnebago's and the pickup trucks because they're going down to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. Everybody tries to do that. That's fun. It's just fun. And so they turn around to their older brother Jesus and say, Jesus, are you going to the festival? It's a really interesting conversation. Again, I didn't really have brothers. I I did have a sister. She tormented me. She put me in the dryer. She tried to kill me several times. I I don't know what it's like to have brothers, but but this conversation is a brother kind of thing. They're not believers. They don't believe in Jesus as the Son of God. They just know him as their older brother. They sort of separate themselves even from Jesus' followers. Notice how they talk to him. They say, hey, Jesus... You do some pretty fancy tricks there. You know, if I were you, I would probably go down to the festival, go down to Jerusalem, and, and, and this show you've been doing out in the hillside in the country with your followers, why don't you take it to the city? You need to go on America's Got Talent, Jesus. That's what they're saying. You need to go down to Jerusalem's Got Talent, and, and you need to do your tricks in front of a big crowd. You might become famous. I mean, you ain't going to be nobody just doing your tricks over there by the coffee table. Come on, Jesus. Go find a crowd. Let's go to the city. Come to the festival. They're not believers. You understand? They're really not concerned with making Jesus famous. They're really not thinking about how Jesus needs more followers. They're not believers. And Jesus says something very interesting. In fact, it's kind of puzzling because Jesus Jesus says, I'm not going to the festival. And then he ends up going. and, And that sort of throws us He says, I'm not going. He says, you fellas can do anything you want. You can go to the festival when you want. You can go however you want. You can go. You don't have to think about the world hating you because the world can't hate you. Now, what does he mean by that? The world can't hate you. He says that because they truly are the world. You understand? The world can't hate you because you are the world. You're part of the world. But the world hates me. And my time has not yet come. 
his brothers were not believers. I just want to stop right here because it's a pretty fantastic place in Scripture to stop and, and see part of the difference between what it means to be a believer and what it means not to be a believer. With Jesus and his brothers, you can see a pretty good contrast here between the way a believer thinks, the way a person who is driven by God, the way that person thinks, and the way a person who's not a believer in God, a person who's not driven by God. And that phrase, driven by God, I think is the point. Jesus says, my time has not yet come. Throughout the Gospel of John and throughout Jesus' life and ministry, Jesus is tuned in to, to one thing, and that is the voice of God. Back in John chapter 6, he says, I came down from heaven for one purpose, and that is to do the will of God who sent me. It is to do the will of the Father who sent me. I have one purpose in life, and that is to do the will of the Father who sent me. This is the way Jesus thinks, and this is what it means to be a believer. This is why Jesus says to his brothers, you can do anything you want. You can go whenever and however you want. You don't have to think about anything, but it's different for me. It's different for me. Jesus is moved, and Jesus is directed by one thing, and that is the voice of his Father. He is, he is purpose-driven, we could say, but more importantly, he is God-driven. And this is what it means to be a, a believer. I know I'm talking to a house full of Christians in this room, in the Franklin campus, and the Overflow, and Perry, Oklahoma. A lot of people who call themselves believers, but stop right here and look at this text, and, and let's do some measuring of yourself. Would you fit the definition of believer when Jesus is doing the defining because for Jesus, a believer is a person who doesn't just go through life doing what they want to do. A believer is not a person who just gets up in the morning and follows whatever she just feels like doing or whatever he feels like doing. A believer is not a person who comes and goes as they please. A believer is not a person, not a person who goes through life without direction, without purpose. A believer is that man, that woman, that teenager, that child. A believer is a person who lives for one single reason, and that is to do the will of the Father who sent them, the will of the Father who has saved them. This is what Jesus says, and this is what sets him apart. He does God's will. Now, those of you in this house this morning, you have just heard Brian and Tina Ahern's story. And it is an amazing story, but it shouldn't be that amazing. You sit back and you listen to a story of a man and wife, new believers more or less, who basically said, God, whatever you want from us, we'll do. Do you understand? That's not supposed to be extraordinary. That's supposed to be the way every single believer prays. That's how believers think. God, whatever you want from me, whatever you have for me, however you want to use my life, I, I'm yours. That's what it means to believe. That's what it means to belong to God. God, I, I'm yours. Whatever you have for me, wherever you want to send me, whatever you want from my life, my entire life is yours. Jesus said to his brothers, you fellas can do whatever you want. Y'all can go whenever you want. You don't have to think about anything. But as for me, my time has not yet come. Are you a true believer? Are you a true believer? 
And if you follow Jesus' definition, a believer is not a person who just sort of agrees with, with, with a set of religious facts that, that they quote down at the church. That's not what believing is. To believe is to give your life completely to God in such a way where you are not your own. In such a way where if God has a purpose, if God has a direction for you, you're going to hear that and you're going to obey. Jesus' brothers, you see, they weren't believers. So they go. And as the father moves him, and in the time that the father moves him, a couple of days later, Jesus goes to the festival. Now, John assumes that you know quite a lot about the Feast of Tabernacles, and honestly, we don't. We don't know a whole lot about it, especially as, 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 as Southerners in the United States and Woodburn Baptists. We don't know a whole lot about the Jewish festivals. But understand something of what they celebrated. I told you that they camped out for seven days, and they did. And they remembered everything that God had done for them in, in the history of the Exodus, in the history of salvation. And the Feast of Tabernacles was all about salvation and all about what God had done in their lives to save them as the Jewish people. They would quote verses like, with joy we will draw from the wells of salvation. And so water became a very important part of the celebration. Water was central to the Feast of Tabernacles. Every single day, there was this incredible parade. Again, think Mardi Gras, think celebration, think something so fun and awesome. The priests would leave the temple, and they would go in this long procession down to the pool of Siloam. It's a big pool, a fountain in Jerusalem. And they would take this enormous golden pitcher, and they would fill it up with water. Again, what they're celebrating was the way God provided water for their ancestors in the wilderness. So they would go down with this gigantic golden pitcher, and they would bear it up high, all of the priests, and they would carry it back to the altar at the temple in Jerusalem. And then in this big moment, every single morning, they would take this gigantic golden pitcher and they would pour it into these giant silver bowls on the altar. It was a water offering. It was a liquid offering. And they would pour that out. And the water would slosh and splash and run off that altar. And the people would just explode in celebration. They loved it. I guess you had to be there. They loved it. They just absolutely loved it. But here's the thing. On the last day. On the seventh day, on the climax of the festival, the priests would do that procession, but they would draw it out really long. They would draw it out long, and they would go back down to the pool of Siloam with that gigantic golden pitcher, and they would fill it up with water and bear it back on their shoulders. And all of the people would line the streets, and they would fill the temple, and they would grab branches. They would have palm branches and olive branches celebrating the harvest, more or less, but just celebrating. They would have citrus fruit because it was the time of the harvest, Tabernacles might be the only time in a kid's life when he might get an orange in Jerusalem, for example. It was a great celebration. They would lift citrus branches and palm branches and olive branches. And those priests would come back with that gigantic golden pitcher of water. And they would circle the altar seven times. It was great. It was dramatic. It was awesome. They would circle the altar seven times. The crowd would fill the temple. This is the climax of the whole festival. They would take this gigantic pitcher that was reminding the people of how God provided water. 
in the wilderness. And they would pour it out. They would pour it out on the altar in those great silver bowls. And the water would slosh and splash and flow. The thing is, from the back row, you couldn't necessarily see that. You couldn't always see and hear. The people would grow very, very quiet. And they would listen for the water. And they would wait for the sign. After the great high priest would pour out the water, he would set down the pitcher and raise his hands. And then the people would shout, lift up your hands. And they would celebrate. Ah, it was a great moment. But here's the thing. That was the moment when Jesus blew the whole thing up. Do you understand? It was on the last day, John says. At the climax of the feast, John says. So think about that. It's that silent moment when the whole body of people is about to celebrate, about to erupt, but they're waiting. They're waiting for the water. They're waiting for the water to be poured. They're waiting for the sign, and everybody to shout, lift up your hands. And in that moment of silence, something breaks the silence. What is it? Jesus' voice. Jesus blows the whole thing up. And what does Jesus say in that very moment? If anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink. If anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink. Wow. Wow. Blows the lid off the festival. What is he saying? In that very moment when the people are celebrating salvation, and how God provided, and how water was a symbol of the life that God gives. In that very moment, Jesus says, anyone who's thirsty, come to me. He's saying that he is the fulfillment, that everything that God was doing in the history, everything God was doing in his people up to this point, Jesus is saying, I myself am the fulfillment of that. If anyone is thirsty, come to me. I am the water that God provides. I am the well of salvation. And all who come to me will draw with joy from the wells of salvation. Anyone who is thirsty, Jesus says, come to me. He's still saying that. He still says that. Come to me, Jesus says. Anyone who is thirsty. I'm glad that he didn't say, anybody who's religious, come to me. I'm glad he didn't say that because a whole lot of people just aren't very religious. I'm glad he didn't say, all of you who just love to come to church. All of you who love to hear two sermons in one Sunday. I'm glad Jesus didn't say that. I'm glad Jesus didn't say all of you who have money to give. I'm glad Jesus didn't say that. He says what? Anyone who is thirsty. In other words, the condition is, is need. Anyone who has need. Anyone who feels that sense of deep Thirst. Now, Jesus isn't talking about physical thirst. I'm physically thirsty right now, but Jesus isn't talking about physical thirst. He's making an analogy. He's saying in, in the same way your body runs on water, your soul runs on God. 
your soul needs a source for, for water. And, and that water, we're talking spiritually, that water is God himself. Anyone who is thirsty, we're talking about a, a spiritual thirst. I don't even know how aware of this thirst most people are. I guarantee you that most of the people you know who are non-believers, they probably don't realize that what they really need is Jesus. They probably don't think that way. As a matter of fact, if we told them that, that, that Jesus offered forgiveness for their sins, a lot of people don't even feel like they need that. If you've noticed, a lot of the people in the world these days, they don't seem to feel a lot of guilt or, or shame for their actions. I'm not sure that a lot of people, a lot of our neighbors even feel a need for forgiveness or, or grace. I don't even know if that's how people think anymore. But I know they have souls. I know you have a soul. And I know your soul needs God the way your body needs water. And the further you are from God, the thirstier your soul's gonna be. I don't know how you'll experience that, that thirst in your life. You might be like Jesus' brothers who seem to be having a good time. I mean, if there's a party going on, they're gonna be there. At the same time, there's kind of a pointlessness to their lives, a, a purposelessness. I have a feeling that at the end of every party, there's probably some part of them that really doesn't ever feel satisfied or fulfilled by that. And maybe that's how it is with you. It's not so much that you feel a need for God. It's just that you seem to have a, a desire, a satisfaction that never gets fulfilled. You want so much in your life. You want relationships, but somehow relationships never work out for you. Somehow, no matter who loves you or, or who you fall in love with, somehow those relationships never, ever seem to satisfy you. Somehow, whatever you want and whatever you get, and some of you had the old iPhone, and then this week you got the new iPhone, and you know what? Ten minutes later, it's just another iPhone. No matter what you want, you get it and immediately you want something else. There is just this bottomlessness to our soul. Do you understand? You're never going to satisfy your desires. You're never ever going to find relationships working. You're never ever going to find that deep thirst in your soul satisfied until you come to Jesus. Do you understand? It's not that Jesus simply provides what you need. Jesus is what you need. He is what you need. If anyone is thirsty, come and I'll give you water. That's not what he says. If anyone is thirsty, Jesus says, come to me and drink. You're going to have to come to Jesus. I don't know about this Jesus stuff, Brother Tim. I believe in God. I believe in a higher power. I'm just not so sure about Jesus. Well, the, the truth that Scripture teaches those of us who believe in Jesus is simple. And it may be sort of scandalous to you, but, but please understand what Jesus himself says. Jesus doesn't give you the option of God without him. We believe that Jesus is God in the flesh. He, he is God, the, the, the very Son of God, we say. And the point of this scripture is that if you don't want Jesus, you can't have God. 
If you don't want Jesus, if you refuse to come to Jesus, you will never have your soul satisfied with that water that that comes only from Christ. You understand? If you don't want Jesus, you're not going to have God. You're not going to know God. No one comes to the Father, Jesus says, except by me. Man, it must have been a tremendous day at the temple. It was a climax of the festival, a perfect October day. The priests go down to the pool of Siloam. They fill that gigantic golden pitcher. The water runs off of their bodies, down their shoulders as they carry that mighty pitcher back to the altar. And they circle seven times. And all of the people wait and watch. And they gather in silence and they listen for that water to pour. They wait for the sign. They wait for the celebration. And in that moment of waiting, in that moment of silence, Jesus speaks. If in your heart, you will surrender to a moment of silence. If, if, if in your life you will submit to a moment of waiting, Jesus will speak. Let me give you a word of advice. When he speaks to you, come to him. Come to him. You will find water for your souls. Pray with me. Oh, Jesus, help us. We are a room full of believers. Most of us, Lord, don't truly follow you. God, help us. Lord, we come to church out of habit, not because you have brought us here. We work the jobs that we work, Lord, because it pays the bills and not because we have some sense of calling. Lord, in fact, there are people in this house right now, people in the sound of my voice, who sort of live two lives. They know what you've called them to do. They know what you ask them to do. And yet, Lord, they continue to spend their days every day doing something else and calling themselves believers. Lord, help us to understand that in coming to you and drinking from you, Lord, our life is no longer our own. And if we're not willing, Lord, to surrender our lives, or if we're not willing, Lord, absolutely to die to ourselves and to live for you, Lord, then we can't have you. Help us to understand, Lord, Jesus, if we don't want Jesus, we can't be Christians. We can't be saved. It's it's about coming to Jesus and drinking deeply and, and joyfully. And, Lord Jesus, I pray that today you would bring us to you. Lord, in silence and in waiting, Lord Jesus, speak. Speak to hearts. Speak deeply into souls. Lord, help us to come to you. Drink deeply from the well of salvation. Lord, I pray for teenagers who continue, Lord, to think that their life is their own. It's about them, Lord. I pray, Lord Jesus, that they would give their lives to you completely, fully, courageously. I pray, Lord, for adults who've served you for years but never, ever have begun the life of obedience. Lord Jesus, I pray that today you would blow the lid off of their selfish lives. Show them, Lord, what it means to drink deeply well of salvation joyfully 
Lord Jesus, something of a religious ritual we're in. We come to church like we always have. I've circled this pulpit 20 times, Lord Jesus. I pray that before we leave this place unchanged, that you would blow the lid off of this place. Blow the lid off of our hearts. Set us passionately on fire for you. Oh, Lord Jesus, speak to us. Call out to us. Let us come to you. We pray in your holy name. Amen.